We're going to be, uh, this is our second Sunday in a sermon series in which we are moving our way through the parables of Jesus. And last week we took pains to define what a parable is. Parables are different than other similar genres, like an allegory. We talked about like um, the uh, story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe was written as a very deliberate allegory, where a lot of the figures there... It's, it's multidimensional. There's a lot of different layers to that allegory. And as you're reading it, there's a lot of different lessons that are trying to be communicated through creating this parallel world where every figure and everything that's going on has um, some parallel in biblical truth. And that's different from a parable. A parable is a very simple story where maybe not every detail has, is laden with deep significance or meaning. Usually when you're interpreting a parable of Jesus, it really boils down to one or maybe two really important main points. And so we've been working our way, or we will be working our way through the parables of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be spending time in one of those parables that uh, I, I struggle to understand in its entirety, and that's the parable of the wheats and the tares. We're going to dive in here and, and do it. We're going to find this parable in Matthew 13. The parable itself is in verses 24 through 30, and then Jesus uh, gives an explanation of the parable in verses 36 through 43. And I'm going to read the parable first and then the explanation. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then down in verse 36, Jesus gives the explanation of this parable. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me pray. A dear Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear what is here in the midst of this parable this morning, and God, help us, guide us by your Spirit into knowing and understanding what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, when I was about 11 years old, my family moved from Washington, D.C. to Vermont, and where I had grown up in Washington, D.C., we had uh, a backyard maybe the size of this first quarter of pews here. And it was chain link fence, and beyond that, the city. And then we moved to Vermont, and we moved to a place that was 100 acres, wide open. You couldn't even see the neighbors. It was beautiful. And my brother developed an interest in wild edible foods. And for a time, I thought I would like to get into wild edible foods. In fact, and this is absolutely true, one time I read in a book that you could make from the root of the bloodroot plant uh, an insect repellent. And so I boiled, I gathered all kinds of blood roots, and I boiled them down. I was like a witch's brew cauldron on the stove in my house. <laughs> and I boiled down this thick red paste. Does not work <laughs> to ward off insects. It does dye your clothes a bright red around the hem here. I, I found that was true. 
It also contained lots of like wild edible foods, and I was interested in that. I liked the idea of getting food out in the woods and being a forager like a, you know, somebody from a bygone era. I thought that'd be really cool. But whenever I would, here's what, here's what scared me off from ever becoming a wild edible food enthusiast. Every food that they say is good, underneath it there's a list like this long of foods, not, of plants not to confuse them with. And I know I'm kind of dim. So I was like, no, I can't be out there in the woods trying to decide if this is good for me or possibly kill me. It's especially true with mushrooms of any stripe. Mushrooms, fungus, they're in there. It's like, oh, this is great, and it has these. I'm like, no, absolutely not, because it looks exactly like this other kind, which if you eat it will definitely kill you. Now, I say that because in our parable for this morning... Uh, What the enemy does is quite insidious. The similarity between wheat and a weed known as the bearded darnel is famous. Uh, Throughout history, lots of people, lots of, in fact, 80% of the diet in Napoleonic France was bread. Wheat is a main staple for people eating food down through the generations. And there has been a real problem for ages among wheat growers, and that is this pernicious weed called the bearded darnel. Some places it's called false wheat. The similarity between these two plants is so great that even for people who have been trained to differentiate between them, they are, for all intents and purposes, identical until the ear ripens. When the ear ripens on the bearded darnel, it, is then, it can then be differentiated, but still only through careful and close examination. And this is a problem because the two plants grow in the same agricultural zones. They like the same growing conditions. They ripen at the same time. And none of that would matter terribly except that whereas wheat is a food staple... The grain of the darnel plant is actually poisonous to people. If you eat the kernel of the darnel plant, it creates an altered mental state and vomiting, and if ingested in large enough quantities, it can actually be fatal. People can die from eating this false wheat. Now, only in modern times have we developed sorting machinery that can efficiently separate out wheat kernels from those of the darnel plant. But in other times, this weed was a major problem for wheat farmers. It's written about in antiquity. It was well known as a problem for uh, producers of food in the ancient world all the way up until modern day, really. And in this parable, Jesus tells us about an enemy who sows the seeds of a poisonous look-alike in amongst the good seed. And we know this because only when the crop ripens do they come to the master and say, somebody's played a trick on you. We've been out in the field and we've noticed that there's this look-alike plant that's grown up among the wheat and now that it's ripened to fruition, we can see that it's not what we sowed. So Jesus tells this parable, a look-alike has been sown in amongst the good seed and in this we see that there is a theme that is repeated over and over again in the Bible. Uh, In this world that we live in and navigate, and I've made this point many times uh, from up here, but in this world we live in, human beings have this rare sort of genius for dividing people up into groups and subgroups and all kinds of categories. This was perhaps most on display in my high school years, where everyone was defined according to their clique and their group and their subgroup and all these weird little cultures and labels were assigned to everybody. But even as an adult, right, we have all different kinds of ways of describing one another. You might say that somebody is blue-collar or white-collar, or they're a country music fan, or they listen to hip-hop, or they're a Republican or a Democrat, or they are, I don't know, we could keep going on and on and on. We define each other according to race and gender and all these different things. Categories go on and on and on, and we're hung up on this stuff in a major way. However, and it's important to see, God's filing system is much, much simpler. In fact, from God's perspective, 
there really are two kinds of people on this planet. There are just two boxes into which all of humanity will be gathered on the last day, the day of the harvest, at the end of the age. According to the Bible, the only dividing line that is eternally significant is whether you are in Christ or not. And we see this in in this parable. There are weeds and there are wheat. There are sons of the evil one and sons of the kingdom. In Matthew 25, 31 through 34, we read this. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but to the goats, but the goats on his left. God's word says, and I believe, that Jesus is coming back. And his arrival will be in the fullness of time, like a harvester arriving to gather into the barn the one and into a fire the other. Matthew 24, 27 says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Christ returns in his glory, there will be no question or confusion about what is happening. We will not wonder, is this really Jesus? It will be horribly, powerfully, and undeniably him. His coming will break into the normalcy of our days like a flash of brilliant lightning. Jesus will be stunningly and obviously Lord when he comes. And on that day, there will only be to the left and to the right. There will only be into the barn and into the fire. There will only be those who are in the ark and those who are outside of it. On the day of judgment, all of those other categories by which we classify ourselves and others, guys, they will be made completely and utterly irrelevant in the presence of his glory. All of the centuries of human experience, all of our accomplishments and attainments, all of our opinions and affiliations and memberships, all of it will boil down to one simple question. And King Herod is going to stand there along with the innocents that he slaughtered and answer it. Who is Jesus to you? Have you placed your trust in Jesus alone for salvation? On that day, the King of Kings will either welcome you as his own or he will say, I never knew you. There will only be those gathered in and those cast out, and there are no other categories. There is no third way. I don't mean to paint this in a heavy-handed or stark way, but I want all of humanity to understand the reality that is set before us in God's Word. Paul began the Armor of God passage in Ephesians 6 by exhorting believers to put on the whole armor of God, and why? He says that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. That's the word that Jesus used to describe the work of the one who sowed bad seed in his fields. He said an enemy has done this. And Paul wrote to us about the armor of God, which we're not going to explore this morning in any great depth. But he says that we should put that on, that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. That Greek word translated as schemes is also sometimes rendered as wiles, and, in, and it could also be rendered stratagems. In other words, I think what's being communicated to us there is that Satan is an enemy that strategizes. He lays plans. He is disciplined. He's creative and intentional in his efforts to thwart the purposes of Jesus and his kingdom in this world to rob the church of its joy, purpose, and power. He is an enemy of Jesus and all of Jesus' aims in this world. And he's real. He's real. I think this needs to be stated. I think if God is the great I am, Satan goes into the world proclaiming that he's the great I am not. I think he's doing a wonderful job convincing the world that he doesn't actually exist. (laughs) He wants everyone to think that he's just the stuff of fairy tale. He's a boogeyman. 
And only simple-minded rubes would believe in such a thing. Of course, many people today do not believe that there are such things as a devil or demons, evil spirits, real, real entities who oppose God. They blind the minds of unbelievers and do their best to deceive, if possible, even true Christians. And our society today really does dismiss the existence of this enemy as fairy tale stuff. But the Bible is deadly serious about his existence. And if we reject the reality of his existence, we reject the counsel of Jesus and all his apostles. Scripture refers to Satan as the anointed cherub, Ezekiel 28, the ruler of the demons, Luke 11, the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, and the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. Scripture depicts him opposing God's work, perverting God's word, hindering God's servants, obscuring the gospel, snaring the righteous, holding the world in his power, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and according to Jesus in John 10.10, his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. So the testimony of Scripture is that the devil is real. Demonic forces in the unseen realm are real. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, we are warned that Satan often comes masquerading as an angel of light. In other words, when Satan comes as an angel of light, he is coming as a look-alike, a counterfeit bill, a doppelganger imposter, a Darnell plant in amongst the wheat. A few years ago, um, we studied our way through the Gospel of John. And it was amazing to me uh, this week as I was reflecting back on that, uh, how often Jesus returns to this theme. For example, in John chapter 8, well, throughout much of John's gospel, Jesus spends most of his words trying to explain himself to people. But in John chapter 8, interestingly, uh, what he does there, I doubt any of us remember that morning, that was like three years ago now, <laughs> But in that uh, morning when we studied the 8th chapter of John, it's a unique exchange because in there Jesus spends most of his time trying to explain to the Pharisees who they are. Nor his normal practice is trying to explain himself to people, but here he's trying to explain to these men who they are. It's a prolonged effort on the part of Jesus to convince these men that they are not true followers of God but are, in fact, in league with Satan and under the sway of demonic lies. We're not, we don't have time to study that chapter this morning either, but it's worth rereading. The picture painted for us in that eighth chapter of John would be amusing if it weren't so tragically serious. There we find men absurdly arguing with God himself about whether or not they are, of all things, his followers. And we find a long-suffering God patiently correcting them. This is the overall tone of John chapter 8. And Satan's strategy there is laid bare. These men that Jesus is trying to convince that they are not true followers of God, they are clean. They are moral. They are church-going. They are upright. And they are religious. And from top to bottom, it is hellish. This is Jesus' argument. By all outward appearances, they are wheat. But whereas man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart, says 1 Samuel 16, 7. At times, Jesus described the Pharisees as hypocrites, which is to say they are play-acting at something in an effort to deceive others. But in this passage in John chapter 8, what Jesus seems to be confronting is not so much their efforts to deceive others as their own self-deception. These men are delusional. They're self-deceived. And Jesus is trying to turn on the light, as it were. He's trying to help them to see themselves more truly, correctly. Really, I think he's speaking to a cluster of Darnell plants that he finds there among the seed, the wheat that was sown. 
Three times in the opening chapter of James, we are warned against the dangers of being deceived. In verse 16, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And again in verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In verse 26, he issues the same warning a third time. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle the tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Self-deception is the hardest kind of deception to detect. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I think Jesus had self-deceived people in mind when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, guys, that's a heavy word to drop in this room. And in some ways, I feel exactly like a man who might cry fire in a crowded theater. (laughs) This is a terrifying parable when we understand what he's saying. He's saying that among God's people, the church has been sown a bad seed. Look alike imposters. And I think instantly most people respond to that truth in one of two potentially disastrous ways. I think some people, their natural bent is to go, oh no, am I a weed? Am I fake? Am I an imposter? Other people go, I always knew that one was an imposter. (laughs) I knew it. Now, both, I don't want you to go in either direction with this passage. What's more than what I want, I don't think Jesus does. Jesus uh, says, judge not lest you be judged. And by that, I don't mean we're never supposed to render any judgment about any person's behavior, because in that same chapter, he goes on to say, we judge a person by their fruit. So clearly, judgment is not off the table in all of its parameters, but what he's saying is God is the judge over a person's standing with God. That's not our place. We might come alongside a brother or sister and say, hey, what you're doing, I think it's out of step with the gospel. I don't think that what you're saying or doing lines up with the beauty of gospel, biblical truth. But we take it too far when we say, and I don't think you're a believer. (laughs) It's not our job to go ripping out the Darnell plants because we're going to do harm to the wheat. We're not to judge one another in that way. That's God's work. And pride, the very essence of pride, is a grasping desire for the place of God. If I were to say, render judgment about if someone is a believer or not, I think I would be seizing the place of God. I'd be sitting on the judgment seat. I think we can render all kinds of judgments about behaviors and attitudes, and we should in love address those things with one another. I hope you're that kind of friend to me when I'm being a jerk or I'm in error. Somebody should say something. I need friends like that. However, what he's saying here, though, is to leave that final judgment until the final day. Let them grow together. And on that last day, God will set it all to straights. But by speaking in this way, I am worried that I may be inviting some of you to come with me to that very potentially dangerous place where misunderstandings could abound. This might be construed by some of you as an invitation to question your own salvation. Jesus spoke about the possibility of being deceived. Jesus spoke those chilling words about people who cried out, Lord, Lord. But he answered them back with those gut-wrenching words, which I pray none of us in this room hear, I never knew you. God forbid that any of us would ever hear those words from Jesus. So now you might be feeling nervous and on edge. Maybe you're the sort of Christian who wrestles with doubt more than other believers and who naturally struggles to trust and believe in God's promises. 
So I found myself this week trying to walk a fine line. On one hand, I don't want to stampede genuine but doubt-filled believers into a panic that they're not saved after all. And if that's you, if you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, I want you to be able to rest in God's promises this morning. God wants you to rest in those promises. But on the other hand, the Bible warns that some church folk, like these Pharisees in John 8, they're deceived. And I don't want to allow a sleepy, fat-hearted, self-deceived person to continue one more dangerous day by slumbering comfortably in the midst of their delusions on their way to hell. So to the one, I need to somehow speak words of assurance, while simultaneously speaking to the others in a way that will stab their hearts wide awake to the danger of their predicament. How in the world does a pastor cry fire in a crowded theater? Well, first of all, let me just say this, and I've said it many times. The foundation of our gospel hope in Jesus is simplicity itself. What Jesus is describing in this parable is a lookalike imposter, something that outwardly resembles the Christian life, but inwardly is motivated by something other than that which the gospel encourage us to lay our hopes upon, our faith upon. And so really to know this morning if somebody is a, if you yourself is a, are a wheat or a darnell, all we need to do is describe with clarity what the Bible calls us to lay the hopes, our hopes upon. What is the seed that Jesus sowed into the world? And is that what has taken root and is flourishing now in our own inner world? Remember last week in our parable of the sower, we made the observation that there in that story, the problem was not the method of the sowing. And the problem was not the quality of the seed. It was the heart that received it. And so this is really the grounds upon which we need to spend a little time this morning in the, in the short amount of time I have remaining. At the center of our faith is a wholehearted and complete dependence on God's sovereign grace. What does that mean? There's a lot of big Christianese kind of sounding words in there, sovereign and grace and all this stuff. What is grace? Grace is the idea that what God has given to you is not because you in any way deserve it. It's, it's the idea of, of salvation being given as a gift, a gift. And that right there is the bedrock truth that forms foundational to our understanding of this good seed from Jesus. Satan is relentless, absolutely relentless in trying to entice people away from grace And back into a sort of slavery where we are trying to earn through works what God will only give you as a gift. And he's so relentless in this mission and in our hearts and in our churches and in the world that the church has to be equally repetitious in bringing us back again and again and again to the reality of grace. Grace is that uniquely Christian idea that you are saved because of what Jesus has done for you, not because of what you do. You rest on the cross when Jesus said as he was dying, it is finished. That is a finished work of salvation. He did not say, I'm done with my part. (laughs) Now you do what you must. We really don't partner with God in the work of salvation, even in our own lives. Uh, If you are a a new believer here this morning, I need to introduce you to two words that sound very like $5 termish. I'm not trying to sound like I'm smart. I just don't know any other words to describe these really important ideas. One is justification. 
Christians will sometimes talk about having been justified in Christ. What does that mean? Justification is a legal term. It means declared not guilty. On the cross, what Jesus did was he justified you to the Father. He took all of your sins onto himself. When he died on the cross, he bore the punishment that we deserve for our sinful rebellion against God. And in that moment, when he took our sins onto himself, his righteousness is transferred to those who put their trust in him for salvation. In that moment, you are declared not guilty. It's a once-for-all transaction. In that moment, you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Christ is clothed completely in your hideous sinful rebellion. It's an amazing transaction. It's once for all. It's not a process. It's instantaneous. That's justification. If you prayed a prayer with me and you put your trust in Jesus alone for salvation, in that moment when you did that, you were justified completely, once for all, forever. You are not entering into a process of justification. It happened in a moment as a proclamation from God that you are not guilty. All of your guilt was laid on Jesus. But then on the tail end of justification comes another very Christianese-sounding word, and that is sanctification. Sanctification always follows justification. Any person who's justified to the Father, you put your trust in Jesus, He gives you the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you then go on to enter into this process where over time, by degrees, through the Holy Spirit and the work of God's Word in your life, you are brought along through a process that you become more and more like Jesus. No one who is justified does not go on to become sanctified. And so when we come to this... um, this thought, and that's the whole idea of fruit, right? The wheat, you can tell it's wheat when it ears out, when the fruit is there. And that comes through the process of sanctification. But this whole process is begun by grace. God is the decisive agent of my salvation. And he's the decisive agent of your salvation. None of us can boast or brag that we're good people. We're a collection of people who have been shown an extraordinary kindness by a God that we don't deserve. He's extended us as a gift, what we never could have obtained through our law-keeping efforts. And I would submit to you that the Darnell plant, the weed, this pernicious weed that's sown by the enemy, which is a look-alike doppelganger plant that outwardly looks like a law-keeper, is somebody who is trying to earn favor with God through their resume of good works. They are somebody who believes that by doing and striving and law-keeping and maintaining all outward trappings of religiosity, that they will somehow put God in the position of being indebted to them, which is very perverse. It's dishonoring to God. So, if Satan, the enemy, cannot make you openly rebel against God and embrace wickedness with both hands, if he can't get you to just say, I love debauchery, (laughs) then you know what he's going to do? He is going to encourage you to obey God with the wrong spirit. This is the seed that's sown in amongst the wheat. Remember that the Bible is described in the armor of God passage as the sword of the Spirit. This sword can be wielded by faith in the Spirit to defend yourself against Satan and his schemes by putting sin to death. But if Satan can entice us to take our Bibles and wield it not as a sword of the Spirit, but as a sword of the flesh... Then all of our works by which we were trying to earn blessing from God would be like falling on that sword in a sort of spiritual suicide. To the legalist, somebody who says, I'm going to make God give me salvation in his favor by doing all the do's and by not doing all the don'ts, and at the end of living a righteous, upright, moral life, God will say, you have deserved this thing from me, 
That person is falling on the sword in, a, in suicide, wielding it in the flesh. Romans 7.11 says this, Paul says in Romans 7.11, Sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Paul could write that very thing about Satan. They love to take God's holy law and use it to deceive us and kill us if they can by tempting us to use the law as a vehicle for self-righteousness. I use this analogy a lot. Forgive me for being overly repetitious. Uh, Years ago, I remember I had to dig up a septic tank and they didn't want to use heavy equipment for this job because it might possibly dig into the tank. So you had to do the whole thing by hand. I was the only one doing it. It was a long, sweaty, disgusting day. <laughs> and at the end of it all, I came into my house, and there in front of me inside the door was a mirror. And that mirror showed me everything I needed to know. Uh, my kids were little at the time, and usually when I would come home, they would come pounding down the hallway to hug me and welcome me home. And here they came, and I was covered in some unspeakable filth. (laughs) I said, stop, don't do it, don't touch me, I'm unclean. Now that mirror in the hallway, it showed me that I was dirty. It showed me I needed a shower. But that mirror had no power to clean me up. It could not do the job. If I took the mirror off the wall and tried to clean myself with it, all I would do is get the mirror dirty. The Word of God is very similar to that. The Word of God cannot clean you. All the commands to do and not to do, you can do them and not do them, and it won't take care of your sin problem. The Bible is like a mirror. When I come to it and it says all this list of things that I should do, and I'm like, I don't do them. And it says all these things that I shouldn't do, and I'm like, yeah, I've done some of those things. That shows me my condition. It's like a mirror that says, you're dirty. The Bible accuses you of sin, wrongdoing. And it also tells you, just like the mirror told me I needed a shower, the Bible's function is to tell me, to tell you, to tell us that we need a Savior. The Bible, law-keeping, the commands, they can't save you. But they tell you that you you need to get cleaned up. And the Bible doesn't leave us hanging. It tells us exactly how we can be cleaned up. And that is through that once for all transaction, justification, Christ can make us right with God. This is the amazing truth of the gospel. But Satan comes along, and in the midst of that good seed that he's sown, the truth of the gospel, that wonderful, life-saving, restful truth, that in Christ you can be cleaned of all your sin, he comes and sows the absolutely poisonous seed that says you can fix yourself. You can, through law-keeping, make yourself clean. You don't need a savior, save yourself. This is the poisonous seed. And so I don't want to stampede anyone here this morning. But if you are such a person who thinks that God looks upon you as one of the good ones because you are upright and moral of heart, Because you are more clean than somebody else you know in your life. If you think you're saved because you're not like one of those, you you have not yet come to understand the gospel. The gospel destroys any human pretense, any pride, any such thing, anything that would make me think I have obtained salvation through my own goodness. And it throws us back in this posture of needy reliance on what God has done for us. And yes, on the tail end of that comes a life of fruit and God following that is wonderful. But it begins with that work of understanding that the foundation of our hope is in Christ and what He's done for us, not what we do. 
There were some false apostles at Corinth who were misusing the law in this way. Listen to what Paul says about them. 2 Corinthians 11, such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is a daring statement. Satan and his servants achieve some of their most destructive work in the church by becoming servants of righteousness. Well, what kind of righteousness? The kind described in Romans 10.3, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Satan and his demons specialize in taking the commandments of the law and alluring people in the church to make those commandments a basis for self-righteousness. Hear me on this. Satan does not care. He is not offended if you try to keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, he loves it, provided you take the credit for keeping them. In fact, he will assist your moral resolve if you will do it in that spirit. Satan does not mind if you come to church or teach Sunday school or preach or volunteer or go on missions trips. He is in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided you rely on yourself instead of the Spirit of Christ. And if you take credit for it yourself instead of humbly giving all glory to God. So do not be unprepared. Our adversary has a clever scheme by which he aims to sow bad seed here among us in our church family. If we as a church are reduced to a Christian do-good society that has a form of religion but denies its power, if we go to church and sing songs and give tithes and study the Bible, thinking that this is how we are going to put God in our debt that we have earned from Him, then we might look outwardly like a moral, upright, God-following people, but inwardly our motivations will be out of step with the gospel truth which celebrates Jesus for what he did, rather than asking God to celebrate us for what we do. Make no mistake about it, Satan is not just enticing us to do wicked things. No, he is actively enticing us to do the best sorts of things with the wrong spirit, thinking that by doing them, we are earning from God what he will only give as a gift. What if Satan actually wants you to go to church, go to Bible study, lead your home in an upright way? What if he's in favor of doing those things just so long as you think that by doing them, you're earning? You say, well, I pray. So do Muslims. You go to worship. So do Hindus. You study the Bible. So do Jehovah's Witnesses. And they can quote it better than many of us. You say, well, I serve the church, serve in the church, or maybe even I go on missions trips. So do Mormons. Scores of them give years of their lives to do so. If your Christianity consists of what you do, asking God to celebrate you for what you've done, rather than arresting in what Jesus has done, then all of our efforts at worship from God's perspective are indistinguishable from the pagan religions of the world that says, I will tick the boxes, I'll do the things, and God will owe me. It reduces the whole scheme to want to getting something you want from a God you don't. But Christianity is first and foremost about a relationship with God. Andrew was up here talking about missional living, and I thank you for his words. I thank him for his words. The Christian does go on to to do much, and to bear fruit. Faith without works is dead. And it is right that we set apart this time every year to bring our focus back to love and action, living the Christian life on mission. But at the base of that must be a differing motivation from those who approach God with the attitude that if I do this thing, He will owe me. 
Rather than slaves of religion and duty and works, we are sons and daughters in relationship with God. And rather than doing things for God, we get to do things with Him. Did Jesus not say that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many? Can you serve God? Can you do a thing that God needs? It's a small view of God. God is perfect in all His ways. He is perfectly content, lacking in nothing. He can only overflow as a blessing to us. We can't do anything that would rob God of His joy or add to the fullness of His joy. And we deceive ourselves in thinking that by living a certain way, He will owe us anything because He is so full, so perfect, that that betrays a misunderstanding of the dynamic between God and fallen man. We ought to serve God wholeheartedly, not because we are trying to make ourselves right, but because we have been made right by God's grace. And we want to become more and more like the God who saved us. We walk with Him as sons and daughters who know Him and love Him and enjoy Him and treasure Him and glorify Him, no matter the cost. So, very simply at the end of the matter... God has sown his seed into the world. The enemy has sown another look-alike seed, one that mirrors the heart of Satan himself. Satan, who in the beginning caused the fall by trying to seize the place of God. That was the whole thing. That was what caused the fall to begin with. Satan, in his pride, tried to seize the place of God. And now he's sown a seed into the world that says, you can save yourself. It's the same spirit. Rather than trusting in God, Satan tried to become like God. And now he's sown a seed that says, rather than trusting in the finished work of Jesus as Savior, you can save yourself. If this morning, that is your heart understanding of salvation... That if you keep the laws and you live in a morally upright way, in the end, God will grade you on a scale and say, you're one of the good ones. On balance, you were better than others. That is not the gospel. The gospel says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, me, and everybody on planet Earth. Nobody. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. We all deserve the wrath and punishment. But then he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you received this thing as a free gift? Trusting in Jesus. You need not worry. (laughs) Simplicity itself. It's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. You don't need to worry. If that's the basis on which you've received the gift of salvation, that's rock solid. That's biblical truth. You can take it to the bank and you don't need to be worried. But if you are still trying to earn from God, if you're trying to prove that you're the, one of the good ones, <laughs> please reconsider. Please acknowledge before the Lord that you're a fallen sinner and you need a Savior. You're dirty and you cannot clean yourself up. God's Word shows us this truth and points us to a Savior, not to save ourselves. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning in the parable of the weeds. Father, it is uh, all at once challenging and reassuring. Father, we do believe in a coming day where Jesus will come and bring with him a day of reward for those who have put their trust in him alone for salvation. As 1 Peter 5, 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, he will bring with him the unfading crown of glory. Father, that's a beautiful truth. We look forward to it. Father, we know that those things that are given to you as a gift, we cannot brag about as though we obtain them through our own goodness or wisdom. We are not good. We are not wise. But God, you have, you have made us good. 
through that work of justification. And you are even now through sanctification by degrees, making us more and more into lovers of righteousness. God, fill our hearts with a deep humility, a love for those who remain lost. God, I pray that we would pursue such people and love them, knowing that, God, that we were once in the same spot and would remain there were it not for your kindness to us. Father, if there is anyone here this morning hearing these words who think that they are saved or cast off from you because of their sin, God, if they think that they are one of yours because they are good, or if they think they can never be one of yours because they're so bad, then God, I pray that the beauty of the gospel would find a home in their heart today in a way that it never has. That they would see and believe the amazing truth that Jesus is the only one who was worthy. He's the only son of yours who never sinned. But amazingly, he took the, our place on the cross, took all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our disobedience onto himself and gave us in, instead his own righteousness. And that anyone who is a sinner, it doesn't matter what sins they've committed, they can come and know the gospel. They can receive that free gift here this very morning. Father, thank you for this amazing gift. You're an amazing God. There is no other story like this. And we are so glad to be living in the midst of that story. God, give us a heart that's founded on the truth of these things and help us to live a life that reflects the beauty and the excellence of it. God, send us out here from love as lovers of righteousness, as workers of what is good, knowing, God, that we do these things not because if we don't, you'll punish us, but because we love them. And our obedience is all just a big statement of us saying, God, that we love who you are and we want to be like you. Help us to be those kinds of people and to live with that kind of a faith, flourishing in our hearts and bearing good fruits. In Jesus' name, amen.